Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of Shuddha Shores Free Thought Podcast. I am Samaya Anjum, your host and a member of Shuddha Shores editorial team. And today, we are joined by Henrik Kjellmar Larsen, who is a PhD researcher on humanitarian volunteers at Monash University in Australia. He is a founder of Northern Lights Aid, a grassroots NGO that supports asylum seekers in Kavala, Greece, and the president of Network for Volunteers, a platform that provides psychosocial assistance to those returning from sites of humanitarian crises. Henrik has written extensively on the subjects of displacement, migration politics, institutionalized racism, and the criminalization of humanitarian workers in Europe, and in particular Greece, which are some of the themes that we will touch upon in our conversation. So we are discussing today the asylum determination processes in Europe, um, the nationalist politics and racist discourse that surrounds it, and the glaring prejudices that became more apparent since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But before jumping into our main topics, I wanted to give our listeners a chance to get to know you and how you came to study this field of work that is simultaneously so personal and vitally important for the sustenance of humankind. Yeah, um, well, I guess it all started like five, no, seven years ago um, when I um, I went to Greece to work uh, during the, uh, you know, referred to as the Greek refugee crisis, where there were thousands of people arriving with small dinghies on the Greek beaches. Uh, so I went to Lesbos in September 2015, and I was initially supposed to stay there for, you know, four days as a proper volunteerist. But I very quickly realized that I can't, I can't kind of walk away from this because we're making an actual difference in other people's lives. Uh, so I stayed on, and I stayed there for four months. And then I came back to when I left uh, around New Year's 2015 to 2016 and uh, was very, very affected by the work I had been doing. So I came back with PTSD and depression. So I spent about six months learning how to kind of live again because uh, I didn't know. I didn't know that I was suffering from mental health illness. I just realized that something was not, not working the way it's supposed to be. So it took me six months to kind of get my uh, foot back on solid ground again uh, and then I realized that if I want to continue doing this work I have to do it from a policy level so I want to you know I want to change a lot of people's lives not just one person in front of me which is great but uh, if I want to help more people I have to start working on how do we change let's see step we follow in order to deal with mass migration uh, so I did a master's in international development practice at Monash University in Australia. And then I started the PhD on uh, when I was looking at how volunteering in humanitarian crisis affects uh, unorganized volunteers or spontaneous volunteers, as we like to call it. Uh, and I looked at and I'm looking at right now how the prof professionalization of humanitarian aid affects our view of volunteers. And in the course of this, these couple of years, I've um, also done research on the criminalization of humanitarian workers and, um, and the use of violence in border areas. 
and this kind of you know turned into our uh, involvement in the debate uh, surrounding uh, the treatment of Ukrainian yep. refugees uh, in comparison to how refugees from other places uh, on the globe are treated. Right. And um, so how would you describe migration politics in Europe? Who do you think argues to justify the use of violence in border areas and what are the factors that perpetuate this hierarchical treatment of people? Are there any underlying factors to racist treatment or do you think it comes strictly from a place of cultural superiority or unrelatability? Well, before we dive into the specifics on that question, we have to realize that borders are very different from people that the world we live in today is structured around equal, unequal forms of mobility, where nations in the global north are given privileged mobility capacity, and, that, and it's rendered from states in the global south that are unable to access the same privileges of mobility. And you see this in the, uh, how visas are distributed and so on and so forth. Um, and to, there's a couple of premises that has to be uh, on board for this conversation is that is that you know liberal Europe assumes that the freedom of and safety of their citizens is dependent upon control and exclusion of non-westerners and pre predominantly non-white people uh, this is what uh, the philosopher Chile Membe referred to as necropolitics where he built on Foucault's concept of uh, biological racism which he describes as the capacity to dictate who matters and who does not, who is disposable and who is not. Uh, and under these circumstances, governments have taken it upon themselves to assign different values to lives. Uh, and one of the consequences of this is the assumption that the unjust global refugee regime that allows Europeans to move relatively freely, whilst people from the global south are subject to severe restraints and criminalization. Uh, so, one of the things you see then is, like you mentioned yourself, the use of violence in border areas where state authorities respond to the needs of refugees and other migrants. It has shown that these processes help create and support a logic of securitized and militarized and even violent responses to migration. Uh, the, the scholar Al Bhadi used the concept crimes on peace to refer to actual crimes, violence and injustice that uh, perpetrate, is perpetrated in response to the threats ostensibly posed by migrants. And to make this a little bit more uh, concrete is you all of Europe where, uh, for instance, on Croatia's border, uh, where we have a lot of examples of actual physical violence uh, against refugees. Uh, and to everyday forms of violence, such as state-sanctioned structural violence, which includes uh, being denied adequate food, shelter, and wash facilities that you can see in the, the Calais jungle, uh, when that was still a thing. And I've been studying, like, I've been studying Greece and Moria and the Greek refugee crisis now to, since, you know, 2015, 2016. 
And here we saw that there was a deliberate state indifference. That is, you know, tantamount to violence in states towards refugees, and it's manifested in in action and abandonment by the state, which resulted in significant physical and psychological harm, uh, because basic needs, you know, they were unmet. In in Moria, for instance, uh, that included self. Uh, they lacked safe shelter, adequate food, and clean water, and they didn't have access to proper healthcare. Uh, and this is a form of structural violence that characterizes. Uh, the violent inaction of a state. So basically, a number of people are systematically oppressed and left to suffer in deplorable conditions uh, in refugee camps all of Europe. And this demonstrates that you know such forms of violence, it is said to be uncommon or uncomfortably within a liberal and post-racial image of the EU. And in fact, it's embodies the inherent logic of liberal governance and there's one there's one thing i think um summarizes this very well is that on, on the uh, the wall uh in moria there's a huge graffiti piece that says this is not europe and you know we have to realize that yes it is that we can't sidestep this responsibility that we can't pretend that what the refugees were met with in moria is not europe because it is and you know this was just one of countless examples across Europe of how uh, refugees are met with systemic uh, and structural violence. Speaking about structural violence, do what is your opinion on this? That do you think politics and um, and democracy has the way that we know it today, the way that it has shaped up to be. How does it affect decision making and and um, it, the subsequent effects on the treatment of refugees? Is do, do states in Europe reflect how the people feel, what the social conditions are? and emotions are, or is there a fracture between the state and society in uh, most parts of Europe regarding this? I think it is definitely a, uh, uh, a large gap between the feeling of the population and how, uh, how the state treats people on the move. Because, you know, from my research and from countless other scholars have shown that, you know, even though even though the people uh, vote parties into power, which uh, orchestrate uh, different different forms of treatment of refugees, it's I've never met I've never met who's kind of who's comfortable with the notion that uh, we are efficiently allowing people to drown on the Mediterranean, you know, because I can sit here. Uh, in Norway, and if I follow the right sources, I can see where boats are uh, in the middle of the sea. And I can also see all the SOS signals have been sent out. And I can see that this has been sent to Frontex and to uh, different coast guards nearby. And I can see that they're not responding. You know, and we have countless examples. I mean, just the, the Ulf report from um, the UN that was just released. 
that Frontex has been party to uh, illegal pushbacks uh, along the European border. Uh, and so, you know, you can't really say that the general population is racist, although there is there's evidence to say that uh, a lot more people experience racism compared to a lot of or pe the amount of people who say that they are racist. So it's kind of, there's, uh, there's some data here which doesn't really add up. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, it's a state issue because it's not, it shouldn't be up to private individuals and 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 the citizens to deal with this. You know? The questions we have to ask, and this was brought up in a seminar I went to yesterday, actually. Um, the question we should all ask is, why is it so that when people moved from Turkey to Lesbos, they had to pay two or 3,000 euros to, to go on a really, really flimsy dinghy to cross this stretch of water, whilst you and I, with our passports, we can buy a ferry ticket from Turkey to Lesbos for 21 euros. Uh, and that question is not asked frequently enough. And that is the issue, that some people are systematically, uh, you know, the border is a completely different th thing to them because of where they come from or their, uh, what their passport says uh, or what the color of the skin are. So that's, you know, that's the main issue I see here. And from a more historical point of view, um, do you think there is a correlation between colonialism and race relation and community cohesion today? Yes, I would definitely say that. Uh, it is not an area that I, you know, it's not one of my expertise areas. Um, and so for someone to unravel that more, I would uh, recommend you to speak with someone who's uh, dived more into that particular part of it. Of course. And um, because you mentioned that there is a gap between society and how people feel about immigration and refugee and the state policies regarding them, I wanted to ask, um, considering that a lot of right-wing governments around Europe are empowering themselves through, through this, um, through feelings of uh, detachment that people have with, with uh, refugees, migrants who don't, let's say, look like them, mm. um, do not share cultural or biological characteristics, similarities. Um, just if you could elaborate on them, do you think there is um, one European racism or are there several strains of it? Uh, can you repeat like the last part of your question? It was the, the line just broke up. Yes, so um, do you think there is a singular European racism, or are there several strains of it? It's, I think you should be careful to, you know, refer to this as, uh, as uh, European racism, because I think a lot of it just comes from ignorance. Uh, and, you know, journalists and the media just definitely place their part in this, uh, where, uh, 
where kind of dehumanizing rhetoric gets through the press and get, uh, gets uh, spread out to the whole population. You know, when, when politicians can refer to mass movements of people as cockroaches and say there's a flood of refugees and that uh, if all these people come, they will topple over our society. Of course, people get afraid. And it's, it's one of the most natural things in, in our biology to, to be afraid of the unknown. And so I, I think that one of the issues here is that I, in my piece I wrote for Shudasar was that we wrote about this idea of closeness of like who, who do we see as being similar to ourselves and who are different. And that is, you know, it's something you can, uh, something you can kind of, you can learn this. This is, this is not, we're, we're not born to, to see that other people are different from ourselves. You know, we can experience closeness with people from all over the world. You just have to be exposed to different kinds of people. And of course, if, if all you see are people who look like yourself and who think like you and who vote like you, uh, that is going to be your frame of reference. Uh, but if you, you know, kind of broaden your perspective a little bit and get used to seeing people who are in, you know, not the, not the same as you, are different than you, vote differently, who think differently. And if you get a chance to speak with them or read, just communicate with them in any way, shape or form, you will see that they have the same basic humanism at their very bottom. They have the same dreams, they have the same hope, they have the same humor to a large extent. Like everyone wants their children to grow up in a safe environment. And if we, if, if we can bring the discourse down to that place to see the, the, the common humanism in every individual out there. Uh, I think this, you know, this, this, this racism we're talking about or double standards in policies or whatever you want to call it, I think that would be a thing of the past because, you know, it's a lot easier to watch or be aware that X numbers of people have drowned uh, in the Mediterranean than to see one single person drowning. And this is the whole thing that happened with uh, in 2015 where uh, the picture of Alan Kurdi suddenly made headlines all of Europe was that this nameless refugee, uh, it was not nameless anymore. It was a little kid. Uh, you know, the fact that Alan Kurdi kind of Western, that's, you know, that's a different discussion as well. But know, hundreds of thousands of kids are dying on European borders. This suddenly became, uh, you know, it became very, very real for many, many people. Uh, but now you see, you only see names or you only see numbers, sorry. You only see numbers of people who are drowned, people who are uh, missing. And there's no stories, there's no faces, there's no names. That I think people get very detached from the fact that uh, these are people just like you and me who are in a less fortunate situation, that we are privileged to live in stable democracies where our passport gives us access, access to most anywhere. So borders to us, it's, it's, you know, it's something we have to cross to go on holiday or to go to see our family. But borders to people from the global south are, in many cases, it's, a safe, it's in opportunities. It's, potential safety. That is incredible. Um, 
And um, I just wanted to briefly come back to one of my earlier questions um, to touch upon what do you think then drives European migration politics? What are the causes and what propels or allows government, makes it convenient for them to be um, racist in their treatment or uh, discriminatory? Yeah, this is this is the big this is the big question, right? Why do we do it? Why do we treat people differently? Um, I mean, there's definitely, like I, I said in the beginning, that it's it's like mutually agreed upon and silent, it's silently agreed upon that uh, this world is open. Op you know, we treat people differently in this world. Uh, and why does this? If you can answer that question, you know, that's a million dollar question. Who is to, who is responsible for politics that that uh, treats treats people differently? And you know, I wrote in this uh, piece for Shudasar uh, about the systemic racism. You know, I still think that is it is uh, systemic racism there, and I think that uh, we as scholars and activists we have a um, we have a responsibility to call this out if we think we see it. Because you know the problem here is that if you if you say uh, that anything is racism uh, in today's climate, you are you are accused of pulling the A card, uh, the R card, and that's saying that everything is so much more complex and you can't just blame uh, the different forms of racism and X Y Z. But the other, the, you know, the the flip side of this is that if you think you see signs of uh, politics or individual prejudice or or racism and you ignore it you are doing injustice to all the individuals who are suffering from the consequences of different forms of uh, prejudice or racism so you know you, i can't really give you an answer to who it is but it's uh, it's uh, you know it's, I, I do believe that structural racism is uh, a large part of it yeah yeah that's definitely food for thought um before heading on to my next question, I wanted to bring something up, actually. I thought it would be interesting to discuss with you. So mm -hmm. um, sociologist Lucy Maybelin, she's a professor, um, she retells the history of the formulation of the 1951 UN Refugee Convention in one of her papers on the neglected colonial legacy of the 1951 Refugee Convention, mm -hmm. um, which is generally remembered as an important moment for refugees globally. However, mm -hmm. the part which is often forgotten is how the United members of the United Nations lobbied for a definition of refugee that is that can be applied strictly to those displaced in Europe before that, that year before 1951, because, and I quote, the most important, the most powerful states in the UN at the time were colonial empires like mm -hmm. France and Britain and settler colonial states like the United States and Australia who organized territories and political communities along the principles of racial hierarchy. Yeah. So where 
I, your opinion here would be valuable and in, 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 um, I would be interested to know what you think about the broader international asylum regime. What would your analysis be through the lens of systemic racism and perhaps its effects on European migration policies? Hmm. That is a very good question indeed. Um, repeat the, the second part, because there was so much context and the line is not the best one. Of course. Um, so what would your analysis of systemic racism um, in the broader international asylum regime be and, and its subsequent effects on European migration policies? Well, you see the same patterns everywhere you go. You could, you could uh, go to Australia where you see that uh, the camps they had in uh, in, uh, in Nauru and Manus, where from the day they opened, have been criticized for uh, for their inhumane treatment of refugees. And you can also you could see it in Europe, and you you see it all over the world that the treatment of refugees are you know under any every every critique. Um, and like we spoke about earlier, is that you know to make sure that to, to make sure that um, that ah um, oh, excuse me let's see to make sure that uh, people are treated fairly and treated in accordance to the uh, Geneva Convention. It's it's not it's it's you know it's not the hardest thing in the world. It is simply to following the rules that we are set ourselves. You know, ensuring fair, fair treatment is easy. All we have to do in society is actually follow the Geneva Conventions and the international human rights laws. But you know what you see now is that the individual countries uh, push through laws that um, sidesteps the uh, Geneva Convention and its national human rights law. And then they have the definitions that are you know, that again, sidesteps this uh, fundamental human rights law. And, and you know, it's, 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 a very, it's, a very, it's a very slippery slope there, because on one side it says that um, you are not allowed to, uh, uh, not allowed to facilitate for people smuggling, but during, uh, under the same legislation, it is how do you define uh, um, people smuggling? And that is one of the things that drove the criminalization of refugees, of humanitarian workers in, in Europe over the past. It's, um, it's a well, I'm going to find it here because it's uh, to get that uh, correct. It is a, a, it is a bull in 2002, I think, where uh, it's it says that essentially says that humanitarian work is allowed and uh, facilitating for people smuggling is not. But the problem with this law is that it opens up for the definition of what is human humanitarian work and what is people smuggling. That is up to the uh, nation itself. And so I think I'm drawing this example just to show you that. 
we don't have a general set of rules and responsibilities that is enforced. Uh, it is it is to, uh, each individual state and each individual government that changed every four years, so it's very difficult to get any any uh, long lasting changes here. Uh, and uh, it is, uh, I think we lose track. I think the international uh, refugee has lost track of of kind of the the base value of humans and. You know, we'd start by referring to them as refugees or migrants or uh, whatever label we want to put on them, and you and they forget that they are humans just like everyone else. Uh, and I think that if we if if we use the language in an efficient way to refer to humans as humans, then I think it would be easier to. I think it would be harder not to uh, include these humans. Uh, in, in the same framework of rights that we have to every, everyone else. Um, yeah, this is the, you bring up some very good points. Um, so you're one of the main focus of your works is on humanitarian volunteers, which is a niche subject, but it's so incredibly important how um, in today's age and time um, to defend human rights defenders is an incredibly difficult task of its own because of how they are being targeted by um, both state and non-state actors around the world. Can mm -hmm. you give us, um, can you illustrate for us what the experience is like in perhaps Greece or even beyond of being a humanitarian volunteer and and um, the reason that they are being targeted mm. so devastatingly, honestly. One of the problems, one of the issues with, with the criminalization of uh, humanitarian work is, is that it's it's a it's a very slippery slope uh, from a legal point of view because you know since um, I think it's since 2015 I think there's a hundred and I don't know 120 something it's probably more than that now but that was we wrote our paper on this um, uh, individuals have been criminalized for uh, for assisting uh, refugees with you know basic needs basically and uh, it's problematic in many many ways um, uh, one of the things that happens is that uh, by criminalizing humanitarian workers you say that their behavior is deviant uh, that this isn't something that we don't want to see and it um, it creates a it creates a climate where Humanitarian work is, 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 you know, it's increasingly unsafe because uh, just to make the definition of criminalization uh, of humanitarian work a little bit clearer, people are on a large scale criminalized for assisting refugees uh, and migrants, uh, both uh, 
on different form of borders, so mainly on land borders and sea borders. Um, and they are, they are subject to very arbitrary uh, accusations for what they've done. In a drawing from my research, I had, uh, I interviewed uh, 15 people who had been uh, criminalized and uh, even more people around them who'd, uh, who was working with policy, who was working alongside them and what their perceptions were of what had happened. And one of the things uh, we saw was that the accusations were very arbitrary and most of the people who were criminalized, they were also, they were never found guilty. You know, we had people who uh, would be accused of this. They would go to like an initial court hearing. Then they would go back to their country of origin. And then they would receive an email from their Greek lawyer saying that uh, the case never even made it to court. So one of the things we found was that it's it indicates that it's this is a method of deterrence you know it's to scare people away to make it unsafe for them to work there and one very concrete example is that i had uh, three participants who um who've been working in the northern greece for i think two years by then and they've been working in the same area for a couple of months driving the same route going to the same camps and one day they were stopped by uh, by some police officers and their whole vehicle was searched and one uh, one police took their walkie-talkies and they left the car she came back five minutes later having found the police frequency which means that she found the frequency that the police uh, uh, communicate on and on that basis these three volunteers who obviously don't speak greek they're norwegians uh, they were accused of international uh, uh, spying, uh, espionage, I think it was, international espionage. And in the car, they found a small knife that they used to open boxes and such. That is in the police report described as a machete. And so there, and this is just one example, which is very, you know, illustrates something that a lot of volunteers uh, were subject to and professional workers as well accusations to uh, to police them and to criminalize them for what they're doing and we have numbers from uh, if you look at uh, the Mediterranean for instance where captains and whole ships and the cruiser ships have been criminalized for saving people on the Mediterranean uh, we know that the weeks and months that these ships has been kept uh, kept in bay because of this, these uh, quasi-legal actions, it has caused lives. It, is, it meant that there has not been uh, search and rescue ships on the Mediterranean. And we, we could see, you could, you could do simple uh, number analysis, where you see that in the periods where these people have been kept uh, in the bay, they have been, uh, there have been more deaths on the Mediterranean. And so criminalization of humanitarian workers volunteers and professional workers it 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 takes lives and it perpetuates this this idea that uh, the refugees are someone who's threatening not threatened uh, and it's a you know it, it is a it undermines you know it further undermines the uh, uh, the geneva convention
This is um, very disturbing, honestly, because one would think that um, refugees are going to arrive in in Greece or in part in parts of Europe naturally because well because you know people that's they have no other choice but humanitarian workers and and the state does not usually have the capacity to or in most cases the willingness to help them or um or take care of them by itself and one would think that humanitarian workers are actually coming of assistance in in this regard mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. assist with the process and and just make it easier generally but to want to silence them to want them to um fear um, the prospect of helping or of providing services it's a uh, it's a, I know it's a, once again a very complex question and more philosoph philosophical, but why do you think this happens? Are, is the state afraid of information being leaked about how they're treating refugees or is there something more to it? Well, one of the things that happens with, uh, you know, with this criminalization incident is that it, it fosters public detachment. And the subsequent uh, of migrants and refugees, uh, and and this is a well-established uh, governing techniques to reduce acts of solidarity and encourage people to look the other way and essentially to let people die at our borders in the name of security. And and it's a you know why it happens. It is this, um, yeah, why do we, why do we criminalize the people who attempt to help, you know? Because um, you, you mentioned it, it's, a, it's a the fact that governments don't want to see what is going on. And you have, having done the research I've done in, in, in Greece, I wrote a paper a couple of years ago. It's called um, Out of Sight, Out of Mind. And what we saw in Greece, and you know, I'm drawing on Greece a lot. It's not that Greece is particularly bad, but um, it's just less I've done most of my research. Um, where you saw that there is a policy of silence uh, around the Greek refugee camps. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people who worked in Moria, the refugee camp in Greece that burned uh, two years ago. Um, and they could describe how it, you know, you couldn't bring a camera into the camp. If they caught you with a camera, they would just delete all your pictures. And that journalists uh, was very difficult to get access. Uh, and in this new camp, which is called Karatepe, I was there three weeks ago. I'm going down again in two days or four days, actually. Um, you see that you're not allowed, like people who are working in the camp, even if they're uh, government officials working in the camp, they're not allowed to share pictures or talk about what they have seen in the camp with people on the outside. Uh, and this, this, you know, this, this counts for the, uh, the humanitarian organizations who work there as well. No one is allowed to speak about what they've seen in the camp, even after they stop working there. This is, this is, uh, this is in Greek law. 
and now they are opening a new camp in Greece, which is it opens in February, is where is what they're saying. Uh, and this is located in the middle of the thickest forest in Greece, and you have to drive like 30 minutes on a very, very bumpy road uh, uh, to get there. And um, it is right next to a, a um, uh, what's it called, like, um, you know, where they put all the garbage and stuff like that. And there's no reception there. And if you don't know that this massive refugee camp has been built in the middle of the forest, you will you will never see it. Uh, and, you know, you obviously get that the local population don't want to have uh, this humanitarian crisis at their doorstep all the time. Because, you know, Greece or Lesbos, it's a tourist island, so it lives of tourism to a very large extent. But it is, it is a, a sign of how, you know, the plight of refugees is kept further and further away. And you, you know, less and less information wants to be, uh, uh, you know, they want less and less information to come out. For instance, whilst Moria was still, uh, was still the big camp on Lesbos, they had uh, visitors, you know, the Pope came, Angelina Jolene, some actors from Game of Thrones came. What very rarely um, made the news was that before they came, busloads of refugees were driven away from Moria and then they cleaned the camp and then you know the Pope walked around and said hi to a couple of people and all the actors did the same thing and one day once they left uh, the the refugees were bust back and then the camp became dirty overnight again and no one cleaned it until the next famous people came to visit uh, and so it, it 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 fits into this policy of silence where where the government officials wants to you know they want to show the camp as as not so bad that it invites public scrutiny but not so good that it's tempting for people to come because it it it, it comes into this push and pull factor debate that the idea that if the refugee camps are are too welcoming uh it will uh, it will encourage more people to to flee and to try to come to these camps uh, and it's the same thing that happened on the Mediterranean uh, the idea of the, pu the pull factor saying that if we rescue uh, both refugees then uh, more people are likely to uh, you know put their family in dinghies and try to cross because they know they will get help and you know this 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 whole idea of not helping both refugees because then you encourage more people to come this was this 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 started in in Australia where uh, Tony Abbott, the prime minister at the time, famously said that the only way to save lives is to stop the boats, which is you know it's out outrageous. You know you could there's so many other things you could do to save lives, but there this idea has um, come into European. Uh, if not policy, but at least uh, a lot of politicians in Europe talk about this, that uh, we should uh, stop saving so many lives because then uh, we will send a signal to other people that, or to other migrants or people who uh, attempt to flee, that it is not safe to flee. You will not get help if you need it. So they, they claim that by taking lives, we are saving lives. So it's a, it's a hugely paradoxical argument. Yeah. And um, so this is 
a little, this is a tangent from the things that we were talking about so far, more policy-based question. Mm -hmm. But because you have studied NGOs and looked at their works and efforts so closely, I, I wanted to ask you um, what, uh, because, um, because of this, uh, there's a severe negligence in solving humanitarian crisis and especially with the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine. There are Ukrainian intellectuals who have brought this up um, very recently and more strongly than ever before that NGOs should play a more active role in conflict resolution because states are concerned with national interests more than anything and and geopolitics always comes in the way um what would your opinion on this be that ngos should play a more active role in uh in, in conflict, conflict. yes well, it brings back to the um, what I was talking about in the beginning, that yes, uh, private actors uh, should play a role in, uh, in, in conflict re resolution, but there's only so much they can do, because they can only do so much until the, the, the policies are changed. And that doesn't mean that, we, you know, that uh, private actors should look the other way. And I very much agree that people who work on the front line should uh, be open about what they see. You know, they can communicate it in a very kind of neutral way, saying that this is just what we see, and this is uh, a breach of uh, these and these uh, human rights. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the only way you can ensure that more people are treated fairly is that is if state actors uh, embedded into po policy and laws, and then we have. Then we can then we can ensure accountability, right? We can make sure that okay, so these rules are in place, and it says that X, Y, Z are responsible for doing this and this. Then we can actually say that okay, this has not been done, and this is the case now. We have rules that saying that refugee camps should have this and this standard, and transit camps should have this and this standards, and they're not you know they're not even following those standards. So from a from a you know from a from a very activist a background because I come from an activist background. I am I'm totally on board with these Ukrainian intellectuals um, that uh, NGOs should be pushing for this. You know, everyone who sees in uh, injustice and inaction and indifference from from state actors should point this out. Uh, but they can only point it out to the extent that that this is happening and this is wrong. Uh, but to make sure that this is not done again it has to be it has to come from a state level that's the only way you can Im implement laws absolutely and um yes this is i had been wondering as well because the concept of non-involvement in humanitarian work or neutrality as you as one would say um one of the points of origin of that was during the biofran crisis of mm. 1967 uh, when the International Red Cross was denied a humanitarian transit through combat lines. And uh, therefore, it became very important for, um, for 
Geneva for uh, NGOs to maintain um, distance from the internal politics of the matter. And I study Afghanistan and I know from there that uh, that this has been a problem um, between Pakistan and Afghanistan and um, humanitarian organizations like the UNHRC as well. And, um, but I wanted to um, ask you because um, are you worried that that if, I mean, for now it is incredibly um, NGOs are involved in in collecting in documentation and collecting witness accounts, even uh, and rather than commenting on the politics itself. But usually these witness accounts are they they um, surface um, um, after, not after, not long after, but usually not at the exact moment that a conflict is going on because. Um, states could interpret that as a as a threat and um, and therefore interfere with their work, their services. Mm -hmm. um, but do you think this involvement of um, NGOs in in advocacy mm. could that could that risk this possibility of of collecting documents and writing history that that often serves a central purpose in knowledge production i mean to a certain extent yes there is a, there's a there's a there's a risk that if you if you if you i mean if you get involved in policy if you get involved in commenting on the crisis you're working in there's a risk that you know, you could lose access like you said um and that is, you know, hugely uh, problematic. But then again, if you work under uh, circumstances that are under every critique, and you see a very systematic uh, violence towards one group of people by a state, for instance, uh, it, um, you know, remaining quiet around that is, it's not ideal. At all, like one example we saw from from Greece was that um, at one point in in Moria, uh, the MSF would uh, move out from Moria, so they would work inside the camp uh, up to a certain extent, where they said that if we stay inside the camp, we are uh, we are you know in through inaction, we're supporting uh, uh, how this camp is being run, and so they moved outside the camp where they were no longer kind of, you know, have to be uh, uh, allowed to be anywhere by the camp authorities because their operations were outside the camp. So they could do the same thing and then they can point out the breaches of, of uh, human rights that they saw. And it's one thing to, you know, there's one thing to actively advocate for, or advocate for a specific opinion. Another thing is to simply point out what you see. And this doesn't have to be directed in one any. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be interpreted in any way. You could simply see that what we are seeing here are X Y Z, and this is the breach of rule X Y Z. Uh, and that's you know that is simply stating what you see. 
uh, and you know and collecting a witnesses account like you mentioned yourself and i think that should be you know that there's good reasons to say um to say why ngo should do that and then again you know this is this is my thoughts as a as a you know the closest i ever came to becoming a humanitarian worker was uh, being a volunteer coordinator uh, for you know over 800 people in the course of four months uh, but this is you know the people on the ground see what the consequences of doing one way or the other they are they are a lot better suited to uh, to making these decisions because it's one, one thing is to have theoretical discussions about what they should do another thing is what is actually going on in the field and what allows us to to save more people and that's you know that's initially the the whole idea of this how do we alleviate as much suffering as possible and that's you know that's just a conversation the two of you are having right now how do we alleviate the most amount of suffering how do we make sure that people suffer as little as possible yes it's absolutely so we're towards the end of our conversation unfortunately i would have liked it to continue but um one of my last questions to you would be mm -hmm. how we've talked about systemic racism and how it affects how the forms that it is present in but how can we effectively address it against um yes address it in order to break the pattern of systemic devaluation of human lives Hmm. Yeah, that's the uh, that's uh, that's another good question. Pattern of systemic racism. Um, well, first of all, you have to you have to make people in the global north aware of the privileges they have, uh, like I myself have, as uh, someone who comes from the global north that borders are open to me whilst they're close to other people. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to look further than to uh, any discussion about racism to see that uh, a lot of people don't actually know what it is and don't know what it looks like. Uh, you know, for instance, this discussion or this, uh, in this edition of Shudasad that was on cultural genocide, I pointed out to understand exactly how uh, the, the difference in how Ukrainian refugees are treated in contrast with refugees from other parts of the world, one has to first acknowledge that racism, contrary to what a lot of people in Norway and, and you know, international beliefs, it's not just an individual prejudice. It is also stru structural and it's an institutional problem. That racism is more than the traditional and narrow definition of discrimination based on physical characteristics such as skin color racism also encompassed prejudice and discrimination for cultural and religious reasons and you saw that um, that uh, it is it is so much more encompassing you know we have the idea of cultural racism for instance where it is claimed that as soon as someone is claimed to not belong here 
because they are from a different ethnicity, uh, different cultural religion, you know, we're dealing with a, a racist frame of reference. Uh, and in order to break, in order to break the cycle of uh, of um, of double standards in international refugee regimes and uh, of uh, this this uh, systemic racism embedded in um, in uh, European migration policies, you have you first have to make people aware of what it is and what it looks like and what it feels like, and so you know, enhance the voices of the people who are uh, subject to this, the people who, are, who experience this on their body every single day. Uh, because unless we ask a population who are, you know, voters in democracies who effectively decide who gets to decide, uh, until we properly understand what racism is and what it looks like, uh, you know, we can't make informed choices uh, about who to best trust when it comes to governing our borders. Thank you for tuning in, dear listeners. As always, please remember to check out our website, www.shouldtheshirt.com for a list of all our podcasts. Until next time.